Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Well, that was exciting. That was really pumped. Uh, I've heard it joked already this morning that uh, it's Labor Day, which means that summer's over. Everywhere else, right? My entire life has been watching your favorite stores bring out sweaters and jackets, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Calm down. We won't be needing those for another 60 days. So uh, it's funny. Uh, it's a little different here in Phoenix. You know, we, we, we do summer ending a little later than most, but uh, I think it's kind of pertinent because uh, this always marks, Labor Day always marks kind of the end of the summer and we start to transition into fall. And so even in our preaching calendar, we wrapped up the summer preaching, Jamie, in the last two weeks prior to, to this week. It just did two unbelievable weeks on vision, just again, re-encapsulating who we are as a church and then casting some really powerful vision for where we're going over the next couple of years under the direction of our elders as we felt called. And so really powerful couple of weeks. Next week, we start a 12-week series on the Ten Commandments, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Kevin and I will be joining Jamie in that series, and, and we're pumped. And so this leaves this week, which is a transition week. Uh, it's a week where we're, we're out of series, and it just says, open topic next to my name. And you're like, whoa, hey, where are we going to go? So uh, as a young preacher, anytime you get a chance to have an open topic, you just start praying, not because you're afraid, but because you're sitting there going, okay, uh, Lord, where do you want to take our church this week? Uh, I have been given the privilege of standing behind this pulpit. Uh, it's an incredible honor to do that. And as I get to do that and prayed hard, uh, I decided this week to dive into Matthew 10 because I think it's got a message that's really, really good. Uh, and when you get these weeks, you really do. You start praying, Lord, where am I? Uh, where's my, my friend group who are believers? What are they going through? What are the things that are happening in the church that I love and hold so dear as a part of my family of faith here on earth? And so what we're gonna dive into this week, I, I've entitled Among Wolves. Uh, it is a great passage out of Matthew 10. And it really, it's a description, a little bit of like, hey, what does it mean to play in the Jesus game? If you wanna follow Jesus, what's the game? How do we play it? What does it look like? Uh, and, and we're gonna take a look at kind of what was it in the context of what Jesus spoke in the first century, but we're also gonna look at, hey, what does it look like for us today? Because culture has been changing and we're gonna talk a little bit about that. And so uh, I wanna start with an opening example. I want you to imagine you get invited to a barbecue every single year. All right, the invitation comes, and it's one of those guys that invited you where it's like, it's not enough to just sit around and talk. There's gotta be an event, right? So it's like bags or it's something, you know, we can't just chat with each other. We have to throw a Frisbee or whatever the thing is. And so this year, he makes, you know, it makes it really clear, hey, we're gonna play badminton. And not like, anybody watch badminton in the Olympics? <laughs> like, that's aggressive. I mean, that was really something. It's not that type of badminton, it's like, you know, you could probably hold a glass of iced tea while you do it, that kind of badminton. And so, you know, you show up, you bring your flimsy little racket that you've had since you were a kid, you a couple of those little birdies, and you get there and you start to kind of warm up. You start batting this thing around. And as you're warming up, all of a sudden out of your peripheral, you see a fast moving object and, and you have just the nanosecond needed to process that it's coming at you. And before you can do anything, you feel a tremendous force moving up through your side, your feet come off the ground and you hit the earth with force. You realize you have been tackled at full speed. 
You hit the ground, and as you hit the ground, you all of a sudden start to feel all these things. You're offended, you're angry, you're hurt, you're confused. And in the midst of all of these emotions, you look over to your friend and you go, what the heck, what's going on? Why was I just tackled? Oh, he says, did you not get the updated invite? We're not playing badminton anymore. We're now playing full contact tackle football. That's actually the name of the game today. You see, in this scenario, it would be imperative to know what game you're playing. And had you known you were playing a full contact sport, when you got hit, you wouldn't have been offended. You wouldn't have been angry. You wouldn't have been hurt. You wouldn't have been confused because you would have understood that part of the game is to be contacted, it's to be hit. It still would have felt the force, you still would have. I played football as a high school kid. I, I remember, wasn't a lot of fun. I was a quarterback, I got hit all the time, spent most of my career running away from people. <laughs> but you just knew you were gonna get hit. It was part of the game. Jamie said a few weeks ago, and this is kinda where I wanna go today, we're not gonna preach the headlines at Scottsdale Bible. You guys clapped for that, you thought it was really great. And so one of the things I, I wanna say is that I, I haven't chosen today's passage so that we can sit down and, and look at the world, grab a headline and start to, to run the Bible through the world to see what the world spits out on the other side. But when I sit back and I look at my life, the things that are affecting my heart, I look at my friends who are believers who are trying to raise kids just like I am. I look at all of my buddies who are kind of empty nesters and a little older. I look at what's affecting their heart and I look at our church at large with all the conversations that I have in my office with so many of you and I look at the things that are really challenging. I don't ever wanna run the Bible through the world but when necessary, I do wanna take the things that are affecting us in the world and run them through the Bible. What I wanna to do today is I wanna to preach to the Christian heart, most specifically about what it means to pick up our cross and to follow him in his footsteps in a world that looks very different than it did just 25 years ago in regards to being a Christian in America. And so with that being our task at hand, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we tackle this, having already preached it once this morning, having gone through a week of prep where you have put me through this passage, where you have had me asking difficult questions of my own faith, reconciling some of the things that I believe about the game that I've been called to play in following after you. I ask that you would open our hearts, you would open our minds, you would uh, give us a clear view of what it is that you're saying in these verses in Matthew chapter 10. Lord, you describe a game that many of us, myself included in many ways, are unfamiliar with. And so, Lord, as we look deeper into the call of the Christian life, I just ask that you would give us all an openness. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts? Would you give us strength? Would you give us courage? Uh, would you give us uh, even a place where we might grieve a little bit as we start to go deeper into what it really means to follow Christ? We pray this in your precious name. Amen. So now that I've thoroughly scared the tar out of all of you, let's go ahead and read this passage we're gonna dive into today. It's Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 22, and they say this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Context for this, Jesus is addressing the 12 disciples. Goes on to say, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my namesake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. 
For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his children, or his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Context for this. Jesus is addressing the 12. He is sitting down. We have an immediate context and an extended context. I will explain that kind of as we walk through these beginning pieces. But when he sits down and says, behold, I am sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves, he is saying to the disciples, listen, guys, this is gonna be a rough road. Okay, for those of you who haven't studied church history, uh, here's a little lesson. None of the disciples died cool deaths. It was not fun. Like, it was not like they, you know, kind of, hey, they were loved and adored for their incredible writing skills and the miracles that they worked. Most of them died really painfully. Couple examples. James, the son of Zebedee, uh, scriptures record that he was put to death. He was martyred by Herod Agrippa. Church history tells us of Peter that he was crucified upside down, if you can imagine the horror of that. Andrew reportedly crucified, Thomas reportedly martyred by a lance, and James, son of Alphaeus, according to tradition, was thrown down from the temple by the scribes and the Pharisees. He was then stoned and finally had his head crushed by a club, all for proclaiming the good news of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, had the very last martyr been the very last disciple, we would say there's no extended context. What Jesus is saying to the 12 pertained to the 12 because the martyrdom, the death that they were experiencing in his namesake never extended outside of the apostles. But the number of people who followed in Christ's footsteps and paid for that with their very life continues to grow to this very day. And the number is astronomical. You see, we say all the time to each other, pick up your cross, follow him. I am following in Christ's footsteps. That is what it means for me to be a believer, to claim him as my Lord and my Savior. Heard a good friend of mine, Dan Green, he's our pastor of congregational care here at Scottsdale Bible, say this this week. He was a senior pastor for many years in the Midwest, and he said, I used to say to people all the time, to follow Christ is to follow in blood-stained footprints. See, this passage isn't telling us that we're sent as sheep among other sheep, okay? It's not saying that we're sent as wolves among slightly stronger wolves. We are sent as sheep in the midst of wolves. For those of you who don't spend a lot of time studying the animal kingdom, that fight's kind of a one-way rodeo. The sheep never comes out on the top of that one. We've heard sermons before where it's said, sheep are relatively, I mean, not relatively, they're completely defenseless. They have no natural defenses, okay? Uh, maybe against humans where they'll bite you and you're like, all right, this isn't worth it, okay? But other than that, in the animal kingdom, they have no defenses. And they're really dumb, like super dumb. They need shepherds not just to protect them, but to actually save them from themselves, okay? We've all seen that deal with the sheep that got lost in the cave. How many of you have seen the Shrek thing? That This thing wanders into a cave and is so helpless that by the time they find it, it's literally grown to a point where it's like, what's up? <laughs> it can't move. They find it back there, they drag it out, and it had become encased in its ever-growing wool to the point where it was like just hobbling along. Like they unsheared it and they got it and figured it out. The other thing, they're, so, they're in such desperate need of a leader, they're such blind followers 
that it's reported that if you leave sheep alone, they'll follow each other, and if it just so happens that they start to link up in a circle, they will walk and walk and walk and rut and dig a trench that will continue to get deeper and deeper. They don't ever stop walking, and eventually when it rains, they'll drown. Like, pick a new path, come on. They're helpless, they're useless. They have nothing going on other than to say, we're in need of a shepherd. So when Jesus is sitting back and telling his beloved disciples, listen, you are sheep among wolves. You are being sent out defenseless in a culture that is going to hate you. And the first century could not have been more caustic for Christians. It was a hostile environment where the culture was absolutely against them. The Romans believed that Christians were a disease, a plague that would affect the economic world because they weren't serving the Caesar. It was going to be an uprising. They were going to cause an incredible rebellion that would push back against everything that they stood for as a culture and as an economy. That's how Christians were viewed. When they sat back and it was like, hey, which church are you going to? It's like, well, you're dead. Like it was a non-starter. You didn't talk about that stuff. And this is not the first time that God's people have been seen as vulnerable sheep in the scriptures. Take a look at Ezekiel 34, uh, verse 22. Here's the context here. Uh, this is Israel. As they're sitting there, and they're being gathered. The prophet Ezekiel, during captivity, he was a captivity prophet, uh, is sitting there and forecasting. He's saying, listen, the Lord will rescue us. But he's sitting there speaking to a people that just got captivated over and over again by other people. They came in and they were captured and then they had no choice. They were just along for the ride. This is how Ezekiel, God speaking through Ezekiel, says this, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. They were defenseless. Goes on to say in verse 28, uh, they shall no more be a prey to the nations. Other nations preyed upon them, uh, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. You see, God's people have been seen as defenseless flocks before. This metaphor is saying something pretty powerful to the disciples. They don't know what's coming, but their very lives will be asked of them because of who they follow. But it is echoing through the centuries to us today. Jesus knows what's to come for them, and Jesus knows what is to come for us as Christians in our country as well. The reality is that, and I'm not saying this, uh, I'm gonna qualify this in just a second, so, so let me walk all the way through this, but the reason this is helpful for us today is because relative to the rest of the world, this country hasn't experienced overwhelming persecution. In fact, for many, many years, we have read passages like Matthew 10, and we've gone, well, that must just be for the end times. That's for when it gets really bad before Jesus comes back. Or we've sat back and said, well, that's in other parts of the world, but we've really grown past that here in our country today. We're not experiencing these things. I'm not saying that nothing bad has happened to Christians here in America. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying that it's always been easy, and I'm not saying that some of you haven't been slighted for the gospel. That's not my point. As a matter of fact, I'll share some evidence to the contrary. But what I am saying is that we have spent a chunk of our lives in a country that for most of its years had a Judeo-Christian foundation. And that is changing as our culture becomes more secular. It doesn't mean this. This is my primary point. I, I could have re-entitled this message, Don't Panic, God's Got a Plan. Okay, and I'm gonna qualify. I'm gonna continue to qualify this because for those of you as you listen to me today go, okay, here we go. 
this kid's a pacifist. He doesn't want us to continue to push. He doesn't, if that's on your phone and that's the title of your email, you're getting ready to fire off to me, stop and let's walk through this together, okay? <laughs> As we walk through this, I want you to hear the message that the Bible has for us because what I'm saying today is that our culture's changing and what I hear so many Christians doing, I have friends walking away from the faith, completely abandoning any sort of orthodox faith, meaning the, the foundational, fundamental things that it means to be a Christian, they're abandoning. My friends are becoming universalists. My friends are sitting back and kind of saying, hey, I don't think there's a hell. I think these are all the things. I mean, every social issue, they're like, yeah, that's fine. The other thing I hear Christians doing, if they're remaining in the faith, I have so many that are simply angry, they're offended, and they're hurt because of the way the culture is, and their response is to complain. They're gonna sit back and they're gonna be angry and complaining for the rest of their Christian walk. And the reason they're doing that is because they're sitting back going, I don't like this game. I don't like this full contact sport of Christianity. It's actually gotten quite hard. I'm offended by it, I'm angry, I'm hurt, and I'm confused. We just need to realize the game that we were called to play. Jesus is spelling it out very clearly. What's the game? The game is, you're a sheep. The context for the game, the playing field, wolves. So the only question that we have after he spells the game out is, how do we play in a game like that? Some of you are sitting back and saying, hey, I just wanna be angry and confused. Okay, that's fine. If you're sitting here going, okay, I can accept that that's the game, how do I play it? I'm so glad you asked. The second part of verse 16 says this, here's how you play the game. You're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's the best practice for this game. Now, this could, have been a very, uh, this could have been a proverbial phrase. This could have been common in the first century where Jesus is teaching. It could have been like, yeah, this is one of those things. Hey, you guys have heard it said, kind of a thing. But what I think Jesus is doing is he describes the wisdom as well as the innocence is he is pressing into something that I think is really important. What he's saying is, be wise, wise as serpents. Jesus is almost assuredly playing off of the Genesis 1 material where the serpent is described as more crafty than the rest of the animals in the garden. The serpent had a reputation for being sneaky, had a reputation for being kind of calculating. He was always ready to strike. That's the reputation of the serpent. So what Jesus is describing is a crafty, calculating animal and saying, I need you to be Christian disciples as you go into this world that is hostile. I need you to be, and here's what that Greek word means. It means shrewd. I need you to be shrewd, to have a carefully calculated awareness of others and to act and represent the gospel in a way that brings people to God without provoking them. That's new for us, right, Americans? Here's the deal. When you grow up in a Christian culture, when you grow up and most of your country has a Judeo-Christian foundation, you can look at anybody and go, hey, where do you go to church? And they go, oh, I go over here. And you go, oh, I go over there. The biggest problem you had not becoming competitive about how big your churches were. We're doing it better. No, we're doing it better. What about when all of a sudden the culture changes as it is today because more and more of my secular interactions are now, where do you go to church? I don't. Why would you ask me that? They're not even embarrassed about it anymore. 20 years ago, hey, where are you going to church? Oh, you know, we're, uh, we left our old church. We're kind of looking for a new one. How long have you been looking? After 15 years. <laughs> Just really looking for that right fit. 
They're not even embarrassed anymore. It's just, I don't go to church. What do you do? Oh, okay. You see, the reality is, as a culture becomes more secular, the keenness, the craftiness, the shrewdness to interact with a culture like that has to increase. We just haven't had to have a lot of shrewdness up to now because most people at least have some sort of a faith background. They're either church attending or church aware. As the culture becomes more secular, what Jesus is describing is, I need a keenness, I need a shrewdness, I need a little bit of a craftiness so that you are now sitting there and experiencing kind of, how's this person, how's that person? What's the best way for me to deliver the truth of God without provoking them? so that I can move in without any sort of a hindrance. Having said that, we're not just asked to be shrewd, we're also asked to be innocent. This is the idea that we are to make our gentleness evident to all as we relate to the vicious wolves in the non-believing world around us. You see, we're not just calculating, we're not just keen, but we're moving in with a gentleness I read a quote this week, and I really, I can't say it any better than this, and so let's read it together, because it starts to take these two concepts and show us why it's so important to put them together. Without innocence, the keenness of the snake is crafty, a devious menace. Without keenness, the innocence of the dove is naive, helpless gullibility. That's Michael Wilkin, the, the quote goes on to say this. So the Christian is to interact with outsiders with a practical wisdom and a behavioral innocence. So the kingdom truths go out with divine power without hindrance. If persecution comes, it must be unearned and yet come it will as we will see. You have to put them together. I've seen both of these without the combination of the other. If you go out and you're shrewd, but without innocence, you are the angry, agitated Christian looking for an unsuspecting atheist to argue with. Coffee shops are your favorite place to be. You walk in and you're going, here's what's true, here's what's true, here's what's true. But it's not in a non-provoking way. It's not done in love. In many cases, it doesn't just come from love. It actually comes from a place of, I'm right, you're wrong, let me convince you. You see, with the shrewdness, with the wisdom, with the calculation of what's going on, there comes an innocence. I've seen the other side too, though. The innocence, but without the keenness, the, the helpless gullibility. It, it, it's the mercy-based Christian who moves out and goes, everything will be taken care of. The Holy Spirit will conquer all. And, and they're not looking at the context of what they're laying the gospel onto awaiting the Lord to give them the wisdom and the keenness to go, I, I wanna do this while avoiding the landmines of this person's trauma, experience, pain, life. Whatever the thing is, they're moving in to love well. You see, when you put the two together, what you get is a combination that preserves the gospel. There's no hindrance involved. It allows the Christian to present the power of the gospel without needing or clinging to any sort of power needed by the culture. It's not the culture that gives the Christian the power. It's not the government that gives the Christian the power, the legislation that gives the Christian the power. It's the gospel that has the power and the Christian moves even if they're powerless. It's why no matter what the culture, no matter what the government, there are Christians all over the place right now who are moving and the gospel is spreading in countries where it shouldn't be spreading. Can you imagine looking at a Christian in China right now and saying, you know, you're probably gonna have to chill for a little bit. 
this legislation's just not favorable for you. No, matter of fact, it's not favorable at all. And you know what Christians in China aren't doing? Quibbling over the little misses that they have with each other in church. Because the next church is 50 miles away, it's underground too, they could be thrown in prison for attending it, and they gotta walk there. They work stuff out, they cling to their family of faith, and they have zero power to present a gospel that has all of it. The reality is the power is in the gospel, not in the Christian, the beauty of this concept is that, is that Christ is delivering it and all can now participate in the delivery of the good news of Christ, no matter what your country of origin is, your government you are subject to, your color of your skin, your socioeconomic status, what relationships you have or don't have. That is none of what gives the gospel power. This country and any other country can go wherever it wants. And like I said, I am not saying we shouldn't vote. I am not saying we shouldn't continue to support groups that advocate for religious freedoms. I'm not saying we shouldn't continue to evangelize. But gang, we've been doing all of that for the last 25 years and it's only getting worse. My point is that if culture continues to become more secular, I want us to not panic. I want us to know that the gospel has an incredible plan B and that plan has worked in some of the most hostile, terrifying, persecuting environments all over the world and Christ has flourished. The first century was a nightmare for Christians in Rome. They were all gathered in Jerusalem and when they sat down and went, let's kill all the Christians, it spread all the Christians all over the Mediterranean and the gospel exploded. You see, the reality today is not sitting back and saying, are we gonna somehow figure out how to turn this country around and get it back to where it's favorable for Christians, where Christians can be in a place of power? That can happen, that might not happen. We might have an incredible revival, we might not. But if we don't, you don't need it. You don't have to have power and influence to move the gospel out. The gospel has all the power it needs. The game has been described. The only question we're answering today, gang, is do you wanna play in the game? That's it. Jesus goes on from there and this is what he says. He goes on to describe a little bit more of what this game's gonna look like. Starts in 17 and moves all the way through it. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my namesake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And he says this, he says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Jamie's got a phrase, and I always loved it. He says, you know what Jesus is really good at? It's kind of this like hug them and slug them approach, right? Holds them close, but tells them the truth. This is a little bit of like a slug them and hug them. It's like slug, hug, slug. We got like a slug sandwich and a little bit of comfort in the middle. If you take a look at these verses, 17 and 18 are this description of this terrifying cultural reality that the disciples are gonna go out in. Hey, listen, you're gonna be dragged away. You're gonna be flogged. You're gonna be beaten. If you look at the accounts of the disciples and what's going on in their lives post-death, post-resurrection, after Christ ascends, it's this. They're judged, they're whipped. Listen, Paul's accounts are insane. Like he's suffered for the gospel tremendously. And yet right in the middle, because Jesus is just so good, he's never sitting there going, hey, it's gonna be terrible, best of luck. 
He's telling him this horrible game, but this is always the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus was never, I will protect you from the fall. The message of Jesus is, I'll restore you from it, but you're gonna feel it. It's a full contact sport being, following me. I wasn't spared from it, you won't be spared from it, but he's always so good to show us the restoration. What's the restoration in this passage? It's right here in 19 and 20. When you're delivered over, don't be anxious. There's the message today. No matter what happens, don't be afraid. If you follow this passage all the way out through the end of chapter 10, it's literally the title of one of the upcoming sections, do not be afraid. He says it right here. Don't be anxious, even in the midst of what would be a terrifying scenario. We'll talk about this in just a minute. Don't be anxious what you are to say. That's the comfort. And then he goes right back to families aren't even safe. Brother against brother. Father against child. Children against parents. No one is safe from the fallenness of mankind. When there's division over me, it will reach even the most intimate, supreme levels of human existence. It will breach the family. And that will be really hard. Don't be anxious. The, the real place where this kind of all starts to come together, Jesus goes right back to, you know, what's the game? How do we play it? Here's what the game will look like. And then lastly, he comes back to, and just in case you missed it, Here's the game yet again. Let's look at verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What's the name of the game? You'll be hated by all. You'll be hated by all. Why? Because you followed me. Because my bloody footprints will become yours. That's the name of the game. It's not always about, about being loved and adored for your faith in him. To be honest, for many years, being a Christian was an incredibly admirable, admirable thing to do. If it's not admirable anymore, are we still gonna do it? I'm not trying to scare you. I love you, my family, this church so much. I just wanna have a truthful conversation about why so many of us, myself included, are scared, confused, and offended by what's going on in the world around us today. You see, it's a full contact sport. We can't be shocked and offended anymore. This is the game we signed up for. I got two examples I kinda wanna close with. One of them was I had a family in my office uh, just last week. Super sweet family, uh, I've known them for a while. And as we were sitting there, they were coming in and they were like, hey, we just wanna meet uh, your forgiveness sermon during the summer, kinda got our attention on a few things. We'd like to talk about it, it was fine. So we got together and as we were talking, they said, we're just in, a, in the midst of everything, we got a lot of relational rift going on. I said, okay, well, let's, let's talk about it. Hit me, what do you got? He said, well, we've had a, another family we were really, really close with. And as they started to learn more and more about our conservative views uh, on, you know, whether it was a social issue or whether it was, it just to be honest, just flat out the fact that they believed Jesus Christ was the only way, this family started to distance themselves, got really upset with them, and it got to the point where they were in a social setting. The other family walked past them and uh, saw this other family that goes here, looked at them and went, oh, uh, hey, and moved their kids along and was like, come on, this way. Let's go. And the family sat there and was like, that hurt. What in the world is going on? All I did was love Jesus. All I did was, was held a, a, you know, a conservative view on the world. And I said, uh, guys, this is exactly what I'm getting to preach on uh, in about a week. I was preparing this sermon when we had this meeting and I just said, guys, remember the name of the game is that you'll be hated for his namesake. 
You're just having to experience it now. You have people who are literally looking at you and saying, we don't wanna interact with you anymore. We don't wanna be social with you. We don't wanna be relational with you. Uh, we think the way you think is backwards. We think the way, and as we talked and we walked through it, the reality was they were paying a price because they carried, believed, and had accepted the gospel. Here's one for all of us. This is a tough pill to swallow, and I wanna swallow it together. Do we recognize that today, the very things that we're talking about in this verse, they're not happening in the end times, okay? They're not something that just goes on in other countries today. Talk about what's going on in the Middle East. There are Christians in Afghanistan right now. This is their life. Here's my question for us, and I want you to know, I've wrestled with this all week long. Do we know that the expectations of a Christian in Afghanistan right now are the exact same expectations of you and me? We're just not having the experiences that render us helpless. Christians in Afghanistan today are sitting in their homes, scared to death, hoping that men don't come in, kick their door down, drag them out, and kill them. So here's what I did this week. I sat there in my office, and as I sat there, I went, okay, play it out. I'm in my home. I'm with my kids. It's my wife. We're huddled in a ball, hoping and praying that our door doesn't get kicked down, but it does. And they drag me as the man of the house out to the front. They put a gun to my head, and they say, deny him or we'll kill you. What do I do? It's all fun and games when you're just sitting there and it's hypothetical. But when you realize that this is happening to people around the world today, you all of a sudden go, well, what about my family? I mean, if they kill me, what happens to, and now all of a sudden you have to start to answer like the 401 level questions about Christianity, the gold medal round of Christianity where you go, do you really trust that God has your family? Do you really trust that the Lord will take care of things in his plan even if they're not in yours? Do you believe that if God walks you all the way through to the very end that he will figure it out from there? Run yourself through the scenario, what do you think? Because the reality for so many of us is when we sit back we go, oh I don't, I don't know, I, I don't know what I do. And here's the deal, loud and clear, this is not a shame message. If in your head you go, no, I would not. Okay, just know that's where we are. Know that the expectation is the same of us and people who are in these scenarios. And if those experiences come, people are having to respond to that. It's not a game you can play with iced tea in your hand. It's a full contact sport. And we're beginning, because culture is becoming more secular, to feel some of the beginning pains of persecution. So as challenging as this is today, what I wanna do is remind us that Jesus preached these words and then 17 chapters later died for our sins. He died for you and for me. Are we willing to die for him? That's the question. That's where the rubber meets the road. Now, what I just described is a literal death that is being asked of people and for most of us today, I, I, like I don't ever wanna make an exhaustive statement, like some of you may have been in these scenarios. 
But for most of us today, the question is not, are you willing to give up your physical life? So let's apply it where maybe it may hit us a little more squarely between the eyes. Christ died for you. Are you, just like my friends experienced, are you willing to die a little bit socially? When being a Christian means that others won't interact with you. Now remember, okay, for those of you that just got a little excited because you're like, all right, he told me, give me the megaphone, I'm going to the corner, I'm gonna start screaming at people. <laughs> Shrewd and innocent. A non-provoking, loving application of the gospel. That is still in play here. Don't go nuts, okay? But are we willing to die socially? Are we willing to love the ones who persecute us? So we're asked to. Are we willing to move in with a shrewdness even though socially people may say, I don't wanna be around you anymore. Your beliefs are no longer hip. They're no longer mainstream. The country's going a different direction and you're not on that train. Are we willing to pay that price? Relationally, same game. When people take their kids, this sounds absurd. Can you imagine preaching this sermon 10 years ago? People would have been like, we could never get there. We're there. Christians are being abandoned socially and relationally because of what they believe in. What does that look like? Are you willing to die there? What about occupationally? Your boss is a non-believer, found out you go to church, had bad experiences at church, is an atheist. You start not getting promotions. Are you willing to die a little bit there? Well, that's not fair. No, none of this is fair. It's a full contact sport. Now, you can, because we still have freedoms, you can pursue whatever remedy you want. But at the end of the day, the reality the Bible gives us is we are sheep among wolves. We will be hated for his namesake. Financially, same game. I think for many of us, this is an area I'm continuing to grow in my own life, just in the fact that how much of my money it belongs to the Lord. That's an area where I'm growing in my life, continuing to give more and more so that the Lord can have that. But I'm, I'm not even talking about what we should be doing for God. I'm talking about what if it presses into a point where now there's a financial persecution against you in some way, shape, or form. Are you willing to die a little bit there to receive a little bit less because of the scenario of you calling yourself a Christian? You gotta hear me loud and clear. The point of the message boils down to pretty much the same point of every message. He has to be where you place your faith. Men will fail us, culture will fail us, governments will fail us, legislation will fail us. We should continue to do them, don't make me qualify that again, but the reality is that if for some reason that doesn't work, there is an amazing plan to continue to advance the thing that Jesus cares about the most, which is the advancement of the gospel, because it's what saves. That's the thing. The gospel's what saves. That's why Jesus at the end of this thing says that those who endure, who's he talking to? A group who's gonna be martyred. When you die an earthly death, it's okay. I've got you on the backside. Endure to the end. Follow me all the way through. You will die an earthly death, but I have saved you spiritually. You have an incredible life. One that will flourish spiritually. I've got you. I think this is a foreshadowing of when he looks at the thief on the cross and says, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. When they come for your earthly life, don't worry, you've got what matters most. It's the end of the sentence. The beginning of the sentence is what he's saying here. Hey guys, it's gonna be rough. They're gonna take earthly from you. Don't worry, you've got heavenly. 
Don't worry about it. You're gonna be defenseless. That's all right. You've got heavenly. Yeah, but they're gonna hate you. That's okay. I love you. Follow me in my bloodstained footprints. Pick up your cross. Let's walk together. My question to all of us today, and gang, I've wrestled through this all week. I'm with you in this. I am not preaching down to you. I am standing in your midst and saying, this is hard for all of us. I grew up in the same culture you grew up in. I got all sorts of little entitlements. I got all sorts of little things that I go, I like my comforts. And yet there's places where the Lord is going, hey Russ, I didn't promise you that. And if it goes away, I still want you to follow me and I still want you to be obedient. And the only answer I can come up with that makes any sense is, yes, Lord. The question to all of us today is, is your faith ready for this type of a life? That's it. And don't feel bad about it if the answer is no. Just start working on your faith. That's why we're here as a church, to build you up, to continue to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's why Scottsdale Bible Church exists. And we're happy to walk that road with you. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we walk out these difficult truths, I know this sermon's rough, I had to write it. And so Jesus, as we sit here today and we process, I I know for some, this is a grieving message. The country that they grew up in is not the country that exists anymore, and that is painful. There's a grieving loss in that. We give permission for people to grieve. Lord, for, for some of us to sit back and to have to walk through the realities of the fact that things not just are changing, but in some ways have changed, and it is requiring us to fully understand the game that you called us to is a big pill to swallow. Would you help us as we process this, as we recognize this is not work that gets done overnight, this will be a process of you strengthening us, but it is so much easier for us to be strengthened if we understand what the game is. Lord, we love you. We thank you for going first. We thank you for setting an example. You did not just sit back and say, you guys do this because I told you. You literally are looking at us and saying, follow me because I did it first. And that we love so much. Thank you for being with us. You empathize with us in the midst of our tough moments because you felt them also. Pray this in your name. Amen.